Welcome to the Beyond Good podcast. This is Matt Findlay. Well, today Femi and I have the pleasure of speaking to Dave Taylor about curriculum. Dave is a math specialist and lead practitioner, well known in math circles for his increasingly difficult questions and backward faded maths, amongst other contributions. Dave has thought long and hard about curriculum issues such as sequencing and mastery and has experience of creating maths curricula, so we were delighted to have him on the show to discuss the considerations, nuances and complexities of developing and implementing an effective maths curriculum. We get into the value of having schemes of work, the fact that students don't come into year seven all at the same starting point and the implications of that, streaming and pathways, mastering material that is prerequisite to moving on, setting, setting philosophy and setting conversations, resources and issues with centrally prepared lessons, space and flexibility in the scheme of work to do retrieval work, go back and fill gaps or push ahead, designing a scheme of work that maximises students' opportunity to succeed by accounting for their starting points, the importance of testing students on what they have been taught and the stupidity and cruelty of giving students summative assessments that contain topics that they have not yet covered, the domain specificity of teacher expertise, why it's hard to develop and some possibilities for doing that better, and increasingly difficult questions amongst other topics. You can follow Dave on X at TaylorDA01. I recommend checking out the resources on his website, And look out for his own podcast, which is launching imminently. Dave Taylor, thank you for joining us on the pod. No problem. Happy happy to be here. Are you happy to give us a a, a quick overview of your your background and what what you do? Yeah, so um, I am a lead practitioner uh, for maths and teaching at a school in Leeds. This is my 16th year of teaching first in my current school um, and in the past I've been a TLR holder, classroom teacher, head of department and I was two days a week math CPD lead um, until last year. So how many schools have you worked in in total? Uh, so this is my third. Um, okay. I was at a school for, for one year. Um, I then, sorry no this is my fourth. I was at a school for one year which merged into another school where I stayed for a year and then I was, and then I moved to join uh, a third school, which I was at for thirteen years. Right. Okay. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Well, the thing that attracted me to some of your tweets uh, a while back was you did a thread based around curriculum, and, and and I found this, I find this a really interesting topic because it, it, I feel like we've got to a point in education where just saying the word curriculum can sound like quite a clever thing to be talking about, you know. I've had a very busy weekend. I've been working on our mass curriculum. I've we had a curriculum meeting. Some of some of the other heads of department met to discuss curriculum. Often, already you know doing a deep dive into our curriculum. And I, I'm just like you. I'm in my seventeenth year of, of teaching. Quite a few different schools, head of department, etc. Good good set of results behind me. But I'm not always too convinced that people mean the same thing when they say this, or that people know what they're talking about when they say this, myself included. So, so what, 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 give us a bit of an overview of what you mean when you're talking about curriculum. So I, I can't speak from a, a top-down view from a, a school leader's perspective. So I speak from my perspective as a, as, as a, a previous maths leader in that I think that I, I mainly refer to like a math scheme of learning, something that like a, a shared journey that all the kids go on that's coherent and allows us to map their progress through maths from when they join us to when they leave us. Right, okay. And and I think you, you delved into this a little bit in your thread about that's difficult to do, isn't it? Right, and it's hard to get that right. I mean, I think back to the 90s when I was at secondary school, I can remember you'd get a, you'd get a textbook, you'd get it on the 1st of September, you'd flick to the front and you'd say, oh, because this is like, let's say this is like 1996. You'd look back, oh, look, the guy called... Guy called Tom Smith had this in 1987. Look at that, and you'd write your name in it, and it was very easy. I, I think the teacher's perspective was it was very easy because you had it in your you had it in your rucksack, you brought it into lessons, you got in trouble if you didn't have it with you. And today we're doing chapter four, which is algebra, and you're doing exercise six, please. And it, that it, you know, a very very simplistic view, not one that was terrible. It worked for me, 
But we're not doing that anymore in education, are we? So what have you seen in the schools that you've worked in? So um, I think that that was my experience at school as well. You'd, you'd open your textbook, it'd say, turn to page 79. Um, then on page 79, it'd say, turn to page 85. And there'd be a little picture of a man smiling at you. Um, you know, from this textbook that like four, four different kids have had in the last four years. Yeah. Um, and it worked for me as well, to be honest. But, you know, like kids that we teach aren't going to be future maths teachers. They're not going to go on to do maths degrees necessarily. And so we need something that works for, for almost everyone. So this textbook approach probably works if you get the, the pitch right. But the pitch is almost definitely never right. Like, um, not never, but it is more often wrong than it is right. Because it works for people like you and me. And it doesn't work for lower retaining students who are not going to go on to study maths at, at higher education. So if if that textbook didn't exist in like 1996, 1997, um, I've got a mate who I used to, to work with. He's retired now. And he talks about the good old days. He used to work in middle schools. And his planning was, well, I just turned up and I, and I teach him something. And that, that just seems absolutely mad. Like... Oh yeah, so what are you teaching the kids? Whatever I want. Um, and then every kid must get a different like diet of education. Like We've come so far in the last, what, let's say 30 years in terms of like making education equal for everybody that I can't, can't see that working in any way, shape or form. Yeah, so that's, it's interesting. We had a we had a sort of similar perspective live. So both Femi and I started working in the same school and that school, there wasn't a scheme of work. <laughs> it, it was, it was literally that you could just teach, teach what you wanted, what you felt like on that day. But, but interestingly, internally, there was an emphasis. It's kind of, um, you know, organically arisen, but there was an emphasis on teacher skill and sharing like what the right journey was and what you should teach next. So there was a real emphasis on teacher expertise and understanding of sequencing um, in that sense. Uh, and that seemed to work pretty well. Um, yeah, there, there were also people who kind of, I feel, checked what was being done quite effectively. So it would have been, it would have been Dave's an NQT. Dave, what are you doing with your year eight top set? I'm doing... Um, I'm just going to start. Yes, I'm going to start September with 3D shapes. No, you're not. Yeah, you know, and, and there would have been that kind of conversation. There would have yeah, been there yeah. was that kind of upbringing for new teachers. It well, wasn't the, perfect. No, and the real downside of it. And, and by the way, I'm not. I'm not advocating for that. I, I'm just telling the story. But the real downside of it was that if you had uh, a teacher that had a bit less expertise, they could be lost at sea, and their classes could could have a very different diet from from uh, some of the other classes. So there was this, there was this big um, inconsistency, let's say, in, in moving through those uh, schemes of work. Set changes as well. And, and set changes were a nightmare. But, but what I found is that, and I don't know what your experience has been here, Dave, that like, having a carefully sequenced scheme of work is really important and is really useful, particularly for less experienced teachers, it doesn't in itself solve the problem of teacher expertise. You still have those teachers that are not um, expert teachers. Their classes still don't make the same kind of progress as the expert teachers' classes. Yeah, no, I, but at least there's then this shared journey through mathematics that allows us to, I mean, there's no, there's no disparity between classrooms. And imagine that disparity like across schools. Like if you've got a, a really well... Um, stocked maths department with loads of expert teachers and the school next door to you has a load of ECTs then there's this massive disparity just in just by going to a different school you, yeah, you're not getting yeah. the same journey and that that happens but I mean that I'm, I'm assuming that was a bit of a postcode lottery um but now there's this minimum standard for everybody like across schools but also like within schools, if we've got this well-sequenced scheme of learning that we all adhere to. Yeah, I, I think I completely agree. My, my point, I guess, is it's necessary, but not sufficient. Like, a, a, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what you've seen in the various schemes of work that you've come across where, you know, things that, that, 
that aren't super critical and what things are critical and where the big where the where the big areas for improvement really lie in your view so i think i think many schemes of learning that you can sort of get off the shelf they're they're totally adequate like they're they're totally acceptable in terms of how they're sequenced in terms of how they can be implemented and they do a decent job for for many um but this doesn't it, it doesn't cater for all our kids. Like we've got a load of kids who I mean, what's the pass rate at GCSE? Sixty one percent. That means that thirty nine percent of kids um, are not mathematically literate to the point that they can achieve a standard pass on a GCSE exam. And I think we all know that you know you can pass a GCSE at eleven if you've succeeded with the key stage two curriculum. So we've got yeah. kids who are who are sixteen who haven't become mathematically literate to the point of a of a successful 11 year old and yeah. i think that this largely comes down to the fact that they're then plonked in front of a, a scheme of learning that says right in week three we're going to do like graphical forms of sequences and these kids don't really understand sequences and they've never seen a graph yeah and so they're just floundering and then in year eight they go oh let's do pythagoras with them and they don't really know square numbers and they don't really know what a right angle triangle is and this just keeps going. And then by the end of it, you've got these kids who are working towards a grade one or a grade two who could have done so much better if they were doing what I like to call like the right maths. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, it's really worth like hammering that point for anyone listening that, that when they arrive at secondary school, age 11, they're not all s- stepping up to the starting blocks at the same place. The point you've made is some of those 11-year-olds are already further ahead than some of the other 11-year-olds will get to in five years' time. So there's, by the time they get to 11, there's already you know, at least a five-year difference, let's say, between them. And, and if the scheme of work doesn't account for that, you know, it's clearly problematic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, you've got these age-related expectations and this kid who's coming in at 11 has uh, you know the mathematical ability of a six-year-old and then they're just thrown the new content for an 11-year-old and they just don't they just don't learn it i think this then comes down to and i've asked this question of a few teachers and specifically trainee teachers but like how does learning happen and i'm not sure that every teacher can tell me how that how that works and maybe they can't tell me and and maybe i can't tell you either but i definitely understand it i just might not be able to get the words out yeah, so uh, I mean, let, so let me let me tell you how I approach this problem and see what you make of it, and we jump off from there. So, when I wrote schemes of work, which I did after the GCSE changed six years ago, um, I started from scratch and I created four pathways, and they essentially so essentially divided students into four ability groups at age eleven. And tr- the aim was to push them from where you meet where you meet them to as far as they could go. So the pathways end up being uh, a, a sort of seven to nine pathway. So that's you know that's the whole course picking up very quickly with where they should be at um, age eleven and taking them through you know hard maths and starting to see some AS level maths. There's a, a five to seven pathway which is higher tier but students targeting their you know up to up to grade seven where a seven would be ambitious for them. Uh, I had a four and a four to five pathway, which is foundation tier. And then a, a sort of what I call targeting grade four pathway, which was really for the weakest students to meet them where they are and build on the concepts that they would need to ideally achieve a grade four. And certainly making sure that there was plenty of coverage within that, that they don't, you know, they're, they're all, they're, the, the possibility of a grade four is there for them if they can if they can achieve that, um, and it's varying starting points, but it's also varying the pace because, as you said, when teachers think about how students learn, the key factor you know this is I think this is Dylan William thing, but the key factor in a student's success of their learning is what they already know, is their prior knowledge. So the more they already know, the faster we can add to it, and the more we completely we can add to it. Um, so it's different paces as well as different starting points. So, well, what do you make of that before I say any more? 
I mean, it sounds similar to the journey that I went on um, when I took over as curriculum lead at the, at the school that I was at previously, um, in that we had a scheme of learning that was um, based on a textbook. Uh, the the um, joint curriculum leader who I shared the role with came to me one day. He says, "Dave, I just I just can't get it. Um, I'm, I'm doing Pythagoras, and the kids the kids are great with like what they're like the process, but they just can't square numbers." And I I literally flicked over a couple of pages in the textbook. I went, "Yeah, that's because square numbers is chapter five, and Pythagoras is chapter three. So even <laughs> even these things that I put out on like a, a commercial scale, that they can be really quite poorly sequenced." Um, and and just setting kids up for for not a lot of success. So in the same way that you did your pathways, which are you the way that you spoke about that, I assume that you went from GCSE objectives backwards. Yeah, um, essentially, yeah, yeah. I did and I did a similar thing where I took the year three national curriculum and then worked forwards. Right. So that I had, um, I mean the 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 labels that kids get. Um, at the school that I'm talking about, were foundation developing, secure, and mastery, and then um, we had a below pathway when we were entering data and an exceeding pathway. So what I called the year three curriculum was below, and then the year four became foundation, and so on and so forth. So that students were then working on math that was appropriate to their mathematical maturity levels and yeah. their expertise, and um, but also. The implementation had to be on as well because just because I taught them this in year seven doesn't mean that they grasped it then, which means that we need to be tracking their progress throughout so that we're making sure that they are grasping the ideas that we're sharing with them so that they can grasp the ones in the next year on on that pathway. Yeah. Well, there's two things there coming up for me that are absolutely key. And one is that the teachers has to have the expertise and, and and be built into this scheme of of work the the initial the assessment points to uh, to check like when the students get to you do they know the things that are on the scheme of work and can i therefore push through those much more quickly on those initial you know year seven stuff or do they not know some of those things and actually maybe i need to dip into the lower scheme of work and spend some time on that so um i i, I don't think like starting off blindly and just assuming that students are at any position is is going to be successful with any scheme of work. No, I, I agree. Um, so what, what our year seven, because um, we're speaking from a secondary perspe- uh, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, our year seven was, we had uh, Key Stage 2 data, we had their CATS test scores. So we had a, an idea of yeah. where, where they were. So year seven was a bit of a teach them what we think is the right stuff and then test them on it. Um, we would test them on the the pathway lower than where they were as well. So every child would start a basis of foundation, but they'd be tested on below if they were following that pathway as well. Um, And then that data would be tracked as they moved into year eight and year nine, year 10. And I decided that I'd do this in a bit of a modular scheme of learning. So there'd be a module A, which was um, symmetry and averages. And I'm going to say sequences, uh, but that might be a lie. And that was module A. And the beginning of every year, they did seven weeks on that content at the level that they were that they were proficient with and then move it on. And then they'd be assessed at the end of those seven weeks. That would be recorded in our departmental tracker. And then when they come into year nine, after being year eight, then we're really confident that they've had success to a certain level. And then we can move them on from that level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when, well, just to, to you, you come in after this, but just to hammer yeah, sure. that point home for... For people listening who might not have kind of really uh, explicitly understood this, like maths is such a hierarchical subject. So everything builds on what's gone before it, it, that it really does matter that you that you understand and conquer what's gone before. So what you're saying, you know, we've got confidence that they can do this before we move on is so critical in our subject. What, what did you do when because you, you said we, 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 we check after seven weeks that they've mastered the, the content of that seven week block. And that means that we know that they're ready to start. The, what did you do when they weren't ready to start it? Because that's something that I think I see happen a lot. And I'm not saying in your case, because I've not been into your school, but I have been into schools before where there's a very clear way things are being done. 
that to any parent or to any sensible person makes really clear logical sense. It only really falls down when you go and see the kids and the lessons and you realise that actually, well, yeah, you are being taught about quadratic equations, but I've just written down a very simple linear equation and you didn't have a clue what I was doing. <coughs> so I'm sure there will have been times where because of staffing or behaviour or student absence or whatever it is, a very short half term where, you know, the 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 uh, progress was not as secure as he wanted it to be. How, how do you deal with that? So because it was all modular, um, if, it, if there was student absence in a particular module, that was addressed in the next year. So there were nine units in each module. Suppose that Femi, you're a, um, you're a year eight child who's yeah. in year seven had success with unit five. It means that we would then teach you from unit five in year eight. And we, would, we, we wouldn't assume that just because you've had success with unit five that you'd remember it. This would be activating prior knowledge, recap, and so on and so forth, and then moving on to what would be unit six. And then you'd be assessed on that. If you had success at unit six, then we'd record that. And then when you come to be a, a year 10 child, you start then at unit six. But they're all different, aren't they? So presumably you would have some kids that had great success and others that had none or very close to, or very limited. And this is where you're setting... In the same class, yeah. Yeah, but this is where your setting comes in. So if a, if a right. child has stagnated over a year, then they need to be taught the maths that next door are teaching. Now, I think that there's a there's a lot put on teachers for differentiating. Yes. Um, and suppose that you've got this year 10 class where there's two kids who are, let's say that you're 10 set three out of five. Yeah. Yeah. You've got two kids who are well below the rest of the class. I do not believe that the most the, the most effective way to to approach this is to say, well, differentiate for those two kids because they should be doing maths, which is the maths that the set below are doing. Yeah, which means that yeah. if if you're uh, yeah, just just to say, it depends. I think because what you can what what can happen is that you have that kind of bright lazy boys or they they misbehave that they tumble down the sets. But they're perfectly bright. They just haven't, uh, you know, been doing the, the work of learning. So they don't actually know things. Uh, I think I'm v- always very wary of moving those kids down sets because uh, for, for two reasons. One, you know, that's an easy opt out for the teacher in, in the department to say, well, he doesn't behave himself and um, he just he hasn't learned anything and I need to move him down a set. Um, and the other is, it's not the right thing for the kids. We have to set on ability, not on behaviour. So in that case, I'm I'm looking to do what I can as a head of department to support that member of staff to to hold that student to account to do the work of learning. Um, but if they're genuinely less able um, and they've 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 been struggling for whatever reason to make progress, uh, I absolutely agree. Put them on the next on the next train that comes along. How do your, how do your setting conversations with your, in your department work? Because this is something we've never really talked about in the pod before, actually. Um, yeah, how do you do that? Because I, I, I did find as a new head of the department eight years ago, I think you had this experience as well, very quickly in the department, new school, teachers sort of, you know, Matt, I must catch you. Tom Smith, in my, give you a mm. example, use 10 set three. He's in the wrong set, needs to move. Look at his test scores, rubbish. How do you deal with that? So I think that um, we, we we spent a lot of time looking at the data that was in front of us, the, the yeah. attainment data that we have. Like if you've got a child that hasn't attained on an assessment and you speak to the teacher and they go, oh yeah, they just didn't try it. Then, then the, the, I mean, the onus is on us to get that child and have them try at that assessment. Yeah. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's the first thing you need to do. So that, 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 um, that goes for the behavior stuff in terms of, we're talking about this this child is misbehaving and we don't want to move them down because they're just not engaging and they are, you know, I mean, they were a high priority Yeah. Then, then yeah. that has to be tracked as well, right? Like that's got to be part of your, your departmental tracking and keep a, a record of when those children move groups. Like if they were in set one in year seven and they're now in set three in year nine, you've got to say, right, we're not moving that child again. That that child needs to be, needs to be, um, I mean, what's what's the word? Um, 
inter- uh, intervene with. We need some intervention in place for that child. Yeah, because, agreed. But but I probably wouldn't want to wait two years to do it. Oh, no, yeah. absolutely. And worst case scenario, you, you don't track that. But if you're tracking that as you go and you go, actually, we moved this kid down last year, we can't do that again. Yeah, yeah, then, yes, yeah, yeah. Then that comes from curriculum leadership. What's the method of instruction? Are we talking um, department PowerPoints? Are we talking (coughs) textbook? Are we talking go and get something off whatever site you want and use it? It's up to you. How how is that being implemented? So in terms of the curriculum that I wrote, um, it was very much everyone had their own own freedom to to teach how they wanted to. Um, We had centrally planned resources. Everyone had access to slides that I'd created, for example. So there was always a basis there for people to use. But, I mean, teachers, teacher expertise is important. And if everyone's using centrally planned resources, they're not developing teacher expertise. They're just reading from a script. And not even a script yeah. in many cases. They're just putting a clicking. PowerPoint on and then clicking through it. And then and then that's the end of a lesson. And apparently this is what teaching is is becoming in some cases, it seems. Oh, it is. It it's, is. It's, it's a very worrying trend that's degenerating into that. Um, on on a, a sort of slightly related to that, you know, I, I, I mentioned different starting points for my different pathways, um, but and the need to for teachers to do uh, formative assessment as they as they progress through those early topics because you don't know what the kids necessarily do and don't know in the way that you do later on, you know, once you get to year nine and you've got quadratic equations coming up, you know that no one will know that because they've not seen it before. But when they come in from primary school, you, you can't be sure. But I found that it was really important to build in time on the scheme of work in both directions. So time to allow teachers to spend more time on things that they've discovered the kids don't know so well, and also time to allow teachers to... Um, who've gone through faster to, to, to spend time consolidating and doing mixed revision and interleaving and so on. So I built quite an open scheme of work in terms of the prescriptive nature of it. Um, what, what are your, how did yours compare and what are your thoughts on that? Quite similarly. Um, I mean, when I worked for Complete Maths and everything that I've heard Mark McCall talk about who, who started Complete Maths, he, he always says, you know, like, teaching takes as long as it as long as it takes yeah, um yeah. so that seven weeks it, it was it, it was the seven weeks is decided by the fact that we have a school year right um and we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again that's like banging your head against a brick wall and hoping that things are just going to work out so that seven weeks is time for teachers to have their autonomy and decide what their children need to learn from uh you know like a, a well-planned um, a well-sequenced list of objectives that take you through averages, say, so that teachers would go, well, they don't get the median. Okay, then you've got time to work on the median. And then come the end of the come the end of that seven weeks, you've got this assessment point where teachers can choose the correct assessment for that class based on what they've learned so that those children are going to be successful with the things that you've taught them. Because, I mean, basically you spent seven weeks teaching them it, right? So you've chosen an assessment that's tailored towards them. The back end of that becomes challenging. The beginning of that is stuff that was prior knowledge. And then you can move on the next year and, and children are always succeeding. So the the big issue that we had um, and the big issue that I perceived to be the case in that setting was um, a removal of, let's say, key stage three sats. This, this external point where kids can perform and... And kids always come in in year seven telling you about their SATs results, right? And yeah. they're really proud of it. Key stage three SATs was that same thing. But what we had was we had kids who were just floundering for for five years between their key stage two SATs and their GCSE. So if we had assessment points every seven weeks, which gave them the opportunity to show progress from last year and that progress was celebrated, then they had something to work towards. So that was that was one of the things that I wanted to happen. Um and I'll be honest, I've forgotten what question you asked me, Matt. I, I was talk- so the, just the building the space into the scheme of work for you know for both consolidation, um, yeah. for teachers to push further ahead, and also for teachers to to spend more time where it's needed. Um, I yes, mean, I just so- I just give you give you an example. I picked up a a top set when they were in year nine, 
and uh, this is a few years ago, and they they weren't anything like where they should have been in terms of the scheme of work. Now, that's not to say the topics hadn't been quote unquote taught in year seven and eight. They had, but it was evident to me very quickly that the class, the majority of the class were not secure on those topics. So I, I went back and worked through what I needed to work through. And it took me all of year nine to get back to where I should have been on the scheme of work. But having the space in the scheme of work allowed me to do that. And the class became very secure in what I needed them to, to do. And I just wonder if some of the schemes of work I've seen, and I don't know what your experience has been, are just too prescriptive in like, this is happening on this date, and then we're doing this, and then we're doing this. Uh, and there's, it doesn't leave the teacher or even expect the teacher to say, what can they currently do? And okay, I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to take some time out here to make sure that they're really solid on the things they need to be able to do for where I want to go next. Yeah, so if you've got um, a scheme of learning, say, that has uh, simultaneous equations in year 10, um, and you've got this foundation group who haven't really grasped the idea of solving linear equations, then yeah. it seems like a totally bad decision to to teach some simultaneous equations, right? Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. the the scheme of learning that, that I had developed and it allowed us to be, and, and I did allude to this before, it was you were choosing the right maths for your group, and then you were assessing them on the maths that they'd been taught. So the assessments were created across the nine units, 20 marks in each one. And then a teacher got to choose, let's say that they were doing three, four and five. So they'd be doing content from units three, four, five, 20 marks from each one. That's an hour test. And then in the classroom next door, they could be doing six, seven, eight, because yeah. that maths was the right maths for those children to be learning. Yeah, I, I, I see that. Now, how, so how did you... How did you prevent teachers? How did you make sure that teachers did keep the pace up and didn't just take that as an opportunity? Uh, and again, I'm not suggesting this this did happen, but I, I had I've had sort of a similar. I, I've had what I'm about to describe happen in my department, where teachers, you know, certain teachers would say, "That's it's just not possible for these kids to learn that," or uh, "That's this too quick," or "That's coming in too early for the kids," and it was very much a case of low expectations uh, and they would have rather spend longer going more slowly than was strictly necessary or even beneficial I would say for the kids to not get bored so what how do you how do you avoid teachers just because they can choose their own things their own modules not going so, too slowly through that but we have we have attainment data from the previous year right so for module c for example when you get to 15 weeks into the into the school year you have module C attainment data from last year. So you know what these kids have had success with. So yeah. you know where they are on the journey through module C, which means that teachers aren't making poor decisions and saying, oh, I'm going to go a bit lower or I'm going to go a bit higher because they've got the point at which that group were successful last year, which means that that's where you start from. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that in any group of data that came through, on any assessment, there was a variety of results, right? We've got kids who have achieved very highly. and we, It wouldn't have been that they've all achieved or they all haven't achieved. It wouldn't have been a, a range. So how, how does the teacher know what to pick when you've got to... Well, I guess you maybe you're going to say related to setting, which I think is true. <laughs> but if you've got, let's say, I chose this assessment, some of the kids got... 30, 40%, but these kids got 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, what, how did you help drive that teacher to know where to start? So the, the assessment wasn't um, recorded as a, as a percentage. It was recorded right. as, um, and a lot of this came, a lot of this uh, inspiration came from the key stage free sats. Um, yeah. It was recorded as the unit number and then 0 0.2, 0 0.5 and 0 0.8. Yeah. So a, a child had to had to score 15 marks on unit four to pass unit four, right? And that would be a, a 4.8. And then if they get five marks on unit five, that becomes a 5.2. 10 marks is a 5.5. 15 marks is a 5.8. And then they can they can graduate into being recorded as, as, a, as, a, as a unit six, if that makes sense. I was going to say level then, but it's not levels. But 
you know, this but, is but, the... But I guess, I guess the point I'm getting at is that lots of kids achieve differently. However you're doing it, I guess you must have had a situation where some were achieving things and others were way off, even though you're setting on ability. So I, I don't or, think that way off is is a way that I'd have, I'd have phrased what was what was right. occurring. There, there, okay. wasn't, there was an attainment range, and that, yeah. attainment range, that attainment range was much greater at the top end than it was at the bottom end. Um, so you had, in the top sets, you had kids who were achieving on, let's say, Unit 8, and then kids who were achieving on, let's say, Unit 6. But there were fewer of those kids achieving at Unit 8 than there were at Unit 6. And sadly, in the education system that we, that we operate in, the needs of the many outnumber the needs of a few. And, and, and this is where I'd, I'd support the request for um, differentiation to, to challenge those, those kids who were, who were flying. I don't think that differentiation should go down. Like teaching to the top is really well-meaning. So if I, if I target my, my instruction at those kids who are achieving two units higher than the other kids, then the other kids are just left to flounder. Like teaching to the top is absolutely well-meaning, but your middle and your lower retainers, they're, they're so like far out of their depth, normally for about three to five years at secondary school and, and, and longer because this starts at primary. And I, I just think that if we differentiate down and, and put that scaffolding in, we're not allowing the children to make that meaning fully before we then teach them this new thing. And they're, you know, the, the way that you used earlier was consolidate. They're not able to consolidate the understanding fully before they then moved on, which means that they don't learn it. Yeah, I think this is why I, I'm a big fan of these, of having different pathways, because you need to spend longer with more consolidation, starting at, at starting lower for those um, a bit for those students coming in with with low ability and less prior knowledge to make as much progress as they can possibly make. And I think having having seen that in action, that then you get bottom sets who are engaged and they are doing meaningful work and they do enjoy maths because actually they're not just clinging on by their fingernails or completely out the game. It's it it means something to them. I mean, yeah, they're they're being successful, right? Like we're yeah, teaching them the right level of maths. Yeah. They're successful. Yeah. They're motivated, and when exactly. they're motivated, they're more successful. And yeah. um, I mean, when 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 children are taught the right level of maths, they can learn well at pace. Yeah, the problem comes I think, when. I, yeah, yeah. Well, no, just to say, I hundred percent agree, and and I think people listening to this might think or might have the question like. Are you just are you just lowering your expectations for for weaker students? And I think both of us, all of us here, would say it's absolutely not that. It's understanding how do you maximise the progress of someone given a starting point and given their their ability. Uh, and to do that, you don't put them on the same course as someone who's six years ahead of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm there with that. Uh, uh, you mentioned key stage three sats. Um, I'm interested in that. This might be a bit controversial, but we haven't. I haven't done sats any sats for years in key stage three, um, and the reason the reason is uh, that when I mapped out my scheme of work, I mapped it across five years, and if I then looked at what was on the sats key stage three sats at the end of year nine it just meant there were certain topics I would have to have taught or introduced in my scheme of work earlier and other topics that I'd introduced that 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 um, wouldn't be tested. And so in the end, it just didn't fit with the progression I had. And I, I spent a lot of time very carefully sequencing, you know, as a mathematician from a, from a mathematics pedagogy perspective, the order of topics. Uh, and my conclusion was it just didn't fit. So we stopped doing it. Um, what, what what value do you see in in doing those? I, I we never actually used them. It was just more the inspiration in that you know you've, right, you've got right, these okay. assessment papers that go from level two up to level eight, and the um, kids do you. two to four, three to five, yeah. four to six, yeah. five to seven, six to eight, and all yeah. these kids are they're being assessed at, at the right level, right? Because you would enter them for a specific paper, right? And yeah. with you, so, yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's a great way to work, but also. You know that this these assessment points and and this checking of progress because what what you'd have is you'd have kids celebrated for for making progress between year five, year six and year nine, whereas whereas yeah. we were celebrating this progress between year seven, year eight, year eight and year nine, year nine and year ten, and so you you were expecting kids to make like a one unit progress, 
But there were kids yeah. who were flying who were making two because they were learning at pace because it was the right maths. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and so you, another thing that you said that I just, I just want to point out for people because I just think this is really critical. You, you used the words, the phrase, they were, they've been tested on what they've been taught. And, and I just think that's, that's so critical. And I, I want to tell a little story that's sadly not that uncommon. But I, I remember going to a sort of curriculum leaders meeting or maths leaders meeting um, of the local community and talking about how t- kids were being assessed and being told by by a couple of the heads of maths there, oh, well, we, we just give them a GCSE paper, you know, at the end of year eight and at the end of year nine. And at the end of year eight, they, they can't do very much. They, <coughs> they get, you know, they get five marks or three marks. <laughs> at the end of year nine, they, they get 11 marks. At the end of year 10, they get, you know, 15 marks. So that shows progress. And me just thinking, that's that's not just poor practice, that's immoral. You know, putting putting kids in for a test on stuff they haven't been taught is is, is wrong. It's absolutely just downright wrong. Um, so so maybe you can speak to how you came to the conclusion that testing them on what they've been taught is so important. I mean, it does show progress and they're not wrong, but you are right. It's absolutely immoral <laughs> to put kids through that, like repeatedly. Like every year, give them a GCSE paper that they score single figures out of 80 on that. That's just crackers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the point at which this kind of came, like, I, I came home for me was I, I had a, a lower tier in year 10 group and they did a, a GCSE paper um, out of 80 marks and, and they got like three, four, five... You know, like the highest score was like eleven. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and they they got their papers back, and oh, and they <laughs> they sat there and they were they were laughing to each other about it, um, and it it sort of became like a, a bit of a race to the bottom, like oh what did you get oh I, I got six oh I got five, like yeah yeah like absolutely. Been... I get we've all seen that haven't we yeah absolutely. So, so what I um what I decided that. Uh, I do with that group specifically is I entered them for the entry level certificate. Um, I say I say I entered them. I didn't enter the. I, I think we entered about two kids in the end. But I used the idea of the entry level certificate to just develop a bit of a bit of success and motivation in them. So, I, like component one is like number and money or something or other. Um, yeah. And like one of the questions was. Um, John buys some sweets for 13 pence. Write down the coins that I might have used. And kids are writing down like, oh, like a, a 10p and a 3p. <laughs> and I'm like, where have you seen a 3p coin? And and when you point it out to them, they go, oh, there's no such thing as a 3p coin. Yeah, no, I, I know. I, and, and you know. So why have you written it? And they're like, I, I, don't, I don't know. And they've just been so used to just being battered by maths assessments that they just didn't engage with them. In any way, shape, right. or form, they right. just they sat there for an hour in silence, writing words on a piece of paper, and some of it made sense and some of it didn't. So I gave them component one, version one, um, and they got let's say like eighteen out of thirty, and this is much better than them getting seven out of eighty. So I was like, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's 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 really good, and they're like, yeah, I feel I feel better about that. I'm like, right, we're gonna we're gonna go through this test in full, and then I'm gonna give you version B. And I wanted to get twenty five, and so what? What I got was I got I got like engagement and buy in from these kids who were laughing about getting less than ten percent, and yeah, all of a sudden yeah. they were they were aiming for over eighty percent, um, and that just sort of seemed to spiral and keep going and keep going and, and and I believe that if I had five years with them doing this with them, then they'd be successful and get a grade four. Sadly, I had the the rest of year ten and then year eleven with them, and. You know, many of them went on to get twos and threes, which at the time was 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 a great success based on where they'd been before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Would you have any advice for? There will be people sat listening to this, I'm sure, who are teaching lower attaining GCC groups, and have been told by a head of department or a, an online scheme of work, this is what's next: Pythagoras, trigonometry, whatever it is, and they just know in their heart. These kids just aren't ready. You just want, aren't going to be able to cope with this. Any advice for somebody like that in that situation? Um, I, I guess the the advice would be. I think it's the same advice that everyone gets given, isn't it? Like, oh, you just don't teach a scheme, and then the 
the question then is, well, what's the point in having a scheme then? Yeah, like, yeah. If you want everyone to go off scheme, then what's the point in having a scheme? So uh, my advice, if that if people are in that situation, is to is to look back up, like let's call it the like prerequisite map. Let's look at all the things that the kids need to know to be able to do this thing, and then work on those things. Like we're we're probably not in the time frame that we're given going to get to actually being able to succeed with the idea that we want them to. But at least if they come to this again, they'll be better prepared to be able to to access it. Yeah, I I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think of that as being, you know, let's let's lay out the mathematical pathway, right? It 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 really is a sequence of steps that follow one after the other. Let's find out where we are on at the moment and then start there. And then let's put one foot in front of the other until make sure we're, we're steady on each step and let's see where we get to. And if we do that, you know, we got, we got something like 800 lessons in five years. I think there's about 160, depending exactly how you count it, different topics on the GCSE. Like if we do that, even the lowest starting students, barring you know certain certain issues, can get to a grade four. It's possible. It's possible. The, the, the evidence for that is how much for those people that have taught A level, how much you cover in two years of A level. It's ridiculous. I know that I know they're they're higher ability, they be more able pupils, and there's more lessons in a week maybe. But you 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 do get through an outrageous amount of work in those two years yeah. compared to what some. Year sevens and the year eights cover, or how much progress they make. Do, do you know think? Yeah, I do. There is the Matthew effect there. The fact that they those those the A level students have so much knowledge already that it picks adding up. More, that adding, adding more happens very quickly. It's quickly. an exponential kind of thing. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 Dave, anything you'd like to wrap up on? Anything that you 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 feel we haven't covered, or anything you'd like to sort of drop in? There was there was just a thought that I had then. Um, yeah. About about you know this, this advice that I'd, I'd want to give teachers who are maybe struggling yes. to to get that um and my question that i that i ask trainees and, and anybody to be honest um, anybody that'll talk to me about math teaching is wouldn't you rather the kids knew 100 percent of half of the curriculum than they knew half of every objective on the whole curriculum brilliant brilliant yeah, quite right yeah quite right brilliant yeah that's a really nice that's a really nice way to 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 pose that yeah yeah. And do you think, and, and I do see this sometimes in some schools that I, I visit, teachers that maybe aren't, aren't that bothered what they know really. I've, got, I've been asked to get through this. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going through it step by step. And actually, that question you're posing there, the answer, I think, to most humans would be obvious. But it hasn't been considered or it hasn't been thought about. So I think the fact that you're posing it you know, and I guess this is why you're doing it, is developing some thought about what's really going on in the classroom. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now you I mean you've mentioned earlier about teacher expertise, um, and how it's and how it's so important. Um I did I did have a I mean, um I'm not sure if I want to show people behind the curtain of your podcast, but you did send some questions through for me to consider before we met today. Um, yeah. and one of them was I did wanna wanna raise this, um, in that teacher expertise is so important. And if we've got these centrally planned lessons and teachers aren't developing expertise, then that's a real problem. Um, and so what we have is we've got like CPD offerings from loads of different places and they don't focus on teacher expertise and subjects expertise. It focuses on questioning and um, like manipulatives, for example, yeah. like just, just yeah. to throw two out there. And, and I think the reason that this is, is because like a lot of teacher expertise and subjects expertise is, is like really domain specific. And yeah. so if, if, if we take that 160 topics across the GCSE, Matt, like, can you imagine doing 160 different CPD courses for each of those objectives? And, yeah, and so no. I think that expertise is really hard to, to build. And I think that like, teachers have got to really engage with it um, in order to, to build that expertise as opposed to just going, oh, I've been told to teach this, so I'm just going to I'll use a PowerPoint from the shared drive. I'm just going to... I'm going to throw a couple of other things in there, but I'm just going to use that as a base. And then that, then I'm just going to move on because that's what the scheme tells me to do. I think that's yeah. a really dangerous place that we've got ourselves into. 
The other thing about the PowerPoints I, I when they're used badly, and I know they, I know that they can be used well, so I'm not going to sort of try and belittle the whole thing, is I think that teenagers sitting watching someone using a PowerPoint that hasn't been created by them, it doesn't look very expert to a teenager. It doesn't look very inspirational. Like, I want to be like this guy. I, mm. I, I remember, I remember yeah. and again, maybe the part of this is that I was interested in maths and ended up being a maths teacher. But I remember watching my maths teacher do things that actually now I'm an adult weren't very difficult, but they were at the time. And thinking, I want to be able to do it that quickly or to think in that way. And, and if, you, if you've got someone modelling things that aren't live, it doesn't really show that, does it? Yeah, I, I agree. Well, the, and the other thing about your, your point about teacher expertise is, uh, you know, and Sam Strickland makes this point in some of his earlier books, like Education Exposed, like we should, we should be waiting generally, in my experience, schools should be waiting much more department time and, and it, putting expectations on departments to train in their domains than this whole school kind of let's get together and talk about questioning thing. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's, that, there's that side of it. And then you're right, you... Even even if you had 160 training sessions, that's still not enough to develop the. If you were to approach each topic individually to develop all that expertise, because the expertise around just teaching simultaneous equations, say, might be is you know it's more than a one hour training session. But what I'd hope, what I think people can do is pick half a dozen topics like that. Simultaneous equations is a great one because it's so layered on so many different skills and and then break that down over a few training sessions and hopefully give the teachers in the department um, the ability to think more generally about how to approach topics in terms of chunking, in terms of prior knowledge, in terms of selecting starter questions to activate prior thinking and point towards today's learning, in terms of thinking of examples, in terms of resources, in terms of the progression and the variation within the resources, and in terms of assessment. And so it's like, can we use those specific domains to develop expertise, which over time can generalize out to all the subjects? And I think that's the real, where the game is at for me. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm right there with that. I am um, about six, seven years ago. I started writing these things called increasingly difficult questions, um, where I I started literally by uh, writing one question on a piece of paper and then sticking it up in the departmental workroom, saying if this is like question one, what's the next question? Right. Like, how would you increase that by like one little bit? And then we end up with a set of twelve questions. Um, that might be a, a nice place for people to start with. There are sets of those at, on my on my website at taylordeer01.weebly.com. Um, that might be good CPD for people. Yeah, lovely. Well, I, what sounds really good about what you did there is people have to think, what would be the next question? So it's, it's almost putting, putting them through that process. Like, oh, hang on, wh- I've come up with question three, but maybe that would be better as question five and, and that mm. kind of thing. Um, do, you, do you tell us a little bit more about where people can find you yeah. and what other resources you have? Uh, right. you, you've mentioned your website there again, but could you, could you say that again? And, and what, yeah, else so I'm, I'm, what else is out I'm there? I'm online on um, X and um, threads as at TaylorDA01. Um, my own website is TaylorDA01.weebly.com. And on right. there, you can find sets of increasingly difficult exercises. You can find some backward faded maths activities. There are some backward faded exam papers. Um, and then in the new year, as it is the new year, but in a couple of weeks, I'm going to start releasing a, a new podcast called How I Taught Maths, which is going to be like Brilliant. a reflection on lessons that I've taught in the past week, um, which will hopefully give people Brilliant. access to more domain-specific CPD. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be listening to that. I yeah. genuinely, genuinely do mean that. Well, you, you must let us know when you've got the first episode out and we'll we'll give it a mention and a, and yeah. a listen. Yeah. Will do. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, thank you for coming on. Appreciate your time. Uh, keep up the good work. You're certainly thinking about what you're doing and, 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 and I do feel that everything you're doing is in the interest of the kids and trying to give kids a genuinely positive experience in the classroom and trying to move away from what we see so often across the country, which is I'm sat here because I've got to be sat here. I don't like it. I don't understand what he's talking about and I want to get and I want I want off this course. And I think that the more we can do about, the more we can do to move away from that in classrooms, the better. So keep up the good work. And thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks. 
Well, always a good opportunity to, to, to link with another math teacher, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic to talk to Dave there. Difficult, as I know that we've found in the past, to um, discuss ideas that aren't live, that you can't see, that you can't always pull out work with or say, come and visit my class, come and see what I'm doing. We're all talking abstractly to a degree, aren't we? Uh, which does make it tricky. We, we do it as well on the pod, don't we? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I, th- I think fundamental fundamental recognition that kids start at different points yep. at, at age 11 <laughs> and that what a good s- s- curriculum looks like is meeting them where they are and moving them forward at the, the best possible pace for them. Yes. Um, and, yeah. and, and I think sometimes we can kid ourselves that, you know, all kids should be on the same journey or that if they're not on the same journey, somehow we're doing a disservice to those ones that... Um, are, are covering less, but I, I my experience has been that that's the opposite is true. We need to we need to go slower and build up knowledge more for the ones that have less prior knowledge. I think the other thing that he he definitely understood was this idea that you, you start by getting some success. Yeah, yeah. If you take you know the example I gave of a teacher who's struggling to get because to, happens to teach a course that the kids is is too much for the kids will always struggle, really, until they start having some success. Because if they have success, two things happen. One, they start to buy into you as a teacher. And, and, and two, they start to buy into themselves as, as a learner. Right, brilliant. And, and, and so many pupils, when you do go and sit at the back of a low ability maths class or a class that isn't making much progress, what you see when you talk to kids is there isn't much of a, of a, of a belief in myself in doing maths. There is other things. Yeah. Look at this! Look at this bike I restored. Look at this—you know—music video I made on my phone. I, I believe in myself in these areas, but with this stuff, I, I don't at all. Yeah. Unless you can get that, you're always going to struggle. I think in, in a math class. Yeah, yeah. And and the question he said at the end—you know—if you put this to the teachers, would you rather they could do 100% of half the course? Would you rather they could do the things that um, you've covered securely, solidly, repeatably? Or would you rather they, they've covered 100% of things, but they have only grasped half of it, which translates to not really being able to do anything with confidence in the exam? Yeah. It's a great, great filter. And, it, and it, it, it won't have been an enjoyable year or two years or three years if it's the second one, will it? Well, because you haven't mastered anything. No. So I'm taking you through this, this, this course, but I'm not, we're not really mastering anything. You know, I'm going to show you how to do some DIY on your, on your downstairs living room but we're never really going to really get it right. But yeah, yeah. you expect us to enjoy it. Well, and, ju- <laughs> and just to point out something I've just thought of that people might think or object to, when my reading of that is we, do, we can do the full amounts, <coughs> we've fully mastered half the course, is not we've covered the whole course and you can't do half of it and you can do half of it. It's we've opted to cover half the course and you can do all of what we've covered. Yeah, I have made the decision not to teach you how to do um, inequality regions on a graph. Right. Because I don't think it's the right thing for you to be learning at the moment. Uh, An extra three lessons would be best spent doing some more trigonometry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you you haven't achieved the prior knowledge that you need to do that. Yeah. So why would I scramble through the scheme of work to get to that? when you just haven't, you're not in a secure place to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder with these conversations that, you know, we're talking, we understand what we're talking about. Dave, Dave's obviously understands what, you know, what's going on here. I, I've had a couple of conversations with, with teachers and heads of department recently where I, I do wonder, like, are we assuming, are we assuming the basics of just like how important it is to sequence carefully, how important it is to make sure that kids are developed through a topic to master it before they move on to the next, how important it is that assessments test what they've actually been taught. What's your experience of people generally understand those things or, or are we making assumptions that we should, we should go back and really lay out? I think, I think, People generally understand them from the point of view of, yes, that makes perfect sense. I'm a, I'm a human being that's been through an education system. I maybe have my own children who are going through education. Of course, I wouldn't want my daughter to do the ballet exam grade five on her first day of ballet class when she's six. Crazy. 
But then actually what you then sometimes see in a department when you go in or you're involved with with it is that, that understanding has been has been lost a bit in what's actually happening on the on the on the table. Right, right. Uh, do you agree with that? Or? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um yeah, good. Okay, well, I think that's probably a, a good place to wrap yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice to chat to you. We'll look forward to this podcast. I, we'll we'll um, mention it once we've got a link and Absolutely. had a listen to it. And yeah. I think it'll be great. 